Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the EM Basic Podcast. We are back after a long hiatus with two episodes which will discuss opioids. Dr. Shana Gifford is back to discuss this very important topic and what it means to us in the emergency department. This episode is part one in a two-part series that will discuss opioid overdose, how to recognize it and how to treat it, how to responsibly prescribe opioids, screen for opioid abuse, and get people the right help that they need if they're addicted to these medicines. So as an update for myself, since the last episode, I moved to the Atlanta area and started a new job with Emory University. I'm working primarily at Grady Hill System in downtown Atlanta, and I'm loving it. From here on out, you won't hear the standard military disclaimer, but I guess I should mention at least once that this podcast doesn't represent Emory University or Grady Health System. That's all I'll have to say on that topic, so from here on out, you'll save about 4.5 seconds of your valuable time each time you listen to the podcast, since there's no more standard disclaimer. You're welcome. Part one of this two-part series covers recognizing opioid overdose and how to treat obvious overdoses. Part two will go through a more complete differential diagnosis of these altered patients so you don't miss anything else, as well as some pearls on special situations, disposition, and how to screen for opioid abuse in the ED. After Dr. Gifford is done, I'll come back on with some more information about what I'm planning for the podcast in the near future. Don't worry, it's all good stuff. With that said, here's Dr. Shana Gifford speaking on opioid overdose recognition and initial treatment. This is Shana Gifford. Welcome to the EM Basic Podcast. In this podcast, we'll review something we all probably wish we knew less about, opioid prescription overdose. Before we begin, I'd like to thank my attending Erica Garcia for her wisdom, input, and insight. Part 1. In this part, we'll go over some compelling statistics, we'll review the classic presentation of an opioid overdose patient, we'll talk through all the Narcan dosing options, all the good ones anyway, we'll run a case, we'll discuss observation times and the disposition of an opioid OD, OD patient, and last but not least, we'll run uh, through a bunch of the cool best practice guidelines for how to optimize use of the opioids we have in our formularies. The good news, before I go into anything else, is that there's a lot we can do for ourselves, for medicine, and most importantly, for our patients to optimize management, maximize good outcomes, and minimize harm. And this podcast is going to encapsulate a lot of the things that we need to know and things that we can do. But first, let's talk about some bad news. Drug overdose is currently the leading cause of injury death in the United States. It's number one. It's not guns, it's not cars, it's drugs. From 2000 to 2014, nearly half a million Americans died from drug overdoses. The number one cause of drug overdose is opioids. That's six out of every 10 deaths as opioids. And most of those deaths were not from street drugs, but were from oxycodone and hydrocodone. So what's important for us to remember about the morbidity and mortality from opioids? We all know it's bad. But I think the important thing is that the number of opioid, opioid analgesic overdoses is proportional to the number of opioid prescriptions and the dose prescribed. That's a straight quote out of the New England Journal of Medicine. The number of overdoses is directly proportional to the number of prescriptions. In 2012, we prescribed 82.5 opioids prescriptions per 100 persons in the U.S. That is so many. And the majority of those prescriptions were for oxycodone, hydrocodone, and methadone. 
a lot of scripts means a lot of admissions. It's what it means to us. It's what it means to everybody. And a lot of calls to poison control. So from 2004 to 8, there was a 144% increase in ED visits alone just due to Oxy. And analgesics of all kinds are the number one reasons why we call poison control these days. They were the number one reason in 2014 and 2013 and 2012. You get the idea. So who's overdosing? What's the risk group? What are the biggest red flags that we look for when we're thinking about opioid overdose? Number one, obviously, history of use and abuse. That population always raises a red flag. Number two, the population who gets the most scripts. This kind of surprised me. Maybe it'll surprise you too. But by age, that's 45 to 64. 45 to 64 year olds get the most scripts and it's a slight majority gender female. Third biggest risk factor besides age, history of use and abuse is polypharmacy. A 2015 study found that patients who died of opioid overdose had an average of 21 prescriptions from 4.5 different providers and three different pharmacies. So they were poly everything, not just polypharmacy or polypharmacies. A patient most likely to OD on prescribed opi opioids is 45 to 65 years old with polypharmacy. So what does that look like? Let's go over that real fast. Opioid overdose presentation. We've all seen it. There are some interesting subtleties. Recognition of the opioid toxidrome. The opioid toxidrome is a classic triad. Respiratory depression, sinus depression, and meiosis. Pinpoint pupils and a respiratory rate of four should trigger suspicion for opioid overdose every time. But, like I said, few subtleties. Starting with respiratory depression, part one of the opioid OD triad. Respiratory depression is the decrease, in this case, in both tidal volume and respiratory rate. The decrease in tidal volume and respiratory rate is dose-dependent and is the result of a reduced sensitivity in the user's respiratory medullary center. So we've essentially torn the CO2 detector off the wall with the opio opioids. So the user's brain is less aware that there's hypercapnia. That's the respiratory depression. Part two, the meiosis. It's due to the stimulation of the receptors and the Endiger-Westfall nucleus of the third cranial nerve. If you haven't read those words since medical school, you're not alone. What's important though is that the meiosis with opioid overdose is not universal. Synthetic opioids like meperidine don't affect the Endiger-Westfall nucleus, nor will lamotil. So while meiosis is a very common part of the classic triad of opioid overdose, may not be present in all cases. It is common but not universal. The third part of the triad is universal. That's the CNS depression due to the stimulation of the mu receptors. Excitability can happen too. So depression is not to say that it's only going to be depression. If you wake your patient up too quickly, they will be hyper excitable and very unhappy. We'll go over that later. But there are a few interesting other less well-known CNS symptoms with opioid overdose. One is hypertonicity. You can find that. You can find myoclonus. You can find Parkinsonian symptoms. And seizures have been reported particularly with the use of synthetic opioids like meperidine. Uh, Rosens mentions that the seizures are attributed either to hypoxia or accumulation of the metabolites uh, like normaparidine. Those can, are known to cause seizures. Some lesser well-known and substance-specific symptoms to watch out for with opioid overdose, apart from the CNS and respiratory depression and the meiosis, are mild orthostatic hypotension and relative bradycardia. 
The hypotension may be caused by histamine release, according to Rosen's, that can be treated with antihistamines and or laying the patient down. Uh, similarly, some of the skin effects, I've seen a lot of that um, in uticaria, can be treated, usually a local effect near the injection site, can be treated with antihistamines. So let's try out a case. 47-year-old woman arrives via EMS. BLS unit came in, found her down. Her son reports that uh, he called approximately 15 minutes ago. What does he know about her history? Only pertinent history is chronic back pain, status post multiple surgeries. According to the son, the patient has been complaining recently of increased pain. He knows that she takes something for it, but doesn't know what it is. On arrival to the scene, the BLS unit recorded some vitals. Heart rate 42, respiratory rate 4, blood pressure 102 over 65. She was satting at 85 and had a Glasgow coma score of 7 on arrival of BLS. They gave 2 milligrams of Narcan IM and they ran. En route, they got IV access. So when they arrive uh, to your department 10 minutes later, these are the vitals. Heart rate 57, respiratory rate 7, BP 109 over 70, GCS 8. So now our primary concern is what? ABCs, same as it always is. ABCs, assessment and stabilization. Even if the patient is found out with a needle in their antecube and a long history of opioid abuse, the primary things we're worried about are the same ones we're always, always worried about. Hypoxia, cardiac arrest. So while we're very tempted to just reach for the Narcan and give some more, by whatever route you decide to give it, whatever dose you decide to give, the first steps in any opioid OD patient are the same first steps as every patient. ABCs. We're going to get this patient on a monitor and oxidate the heck out of her. If her heart's not working, we're going to pump. If she isn't oxygenating, we're going to give O2. If she's apneic, we're going to bag her and then start Narcan. This may buy us a bit of time before we have to intubate. We may not have to in the end. If she has any respiratory effort, I'm going to put on a nasal cannula plus a non-rebreather, crank it up to 15. We're going to try jaw thrust. While we're getting the Narcan started, it may help stimulate her to breathe. We're going to do all that for our patient while assessing, stabilizing, seeking out, and treating easily reversible causes of altered mental status, which are the opioid OD and hypoglycemia. Possibly also thiamine deficiency, if you still like to consider that as an undifferential. So the ABCs. Here's the patient's ABCs. We're going to go secure her airway. Checking on the airway, we see it is patent. Checking on her breathing, it's still at seven a minute. Okay, so we put on the nasal cannula, we crank up the non-rebreather, and we try a jaw thrust. We look down and we see that she's satting at 94 on the pulse ox. Circulation, she's hooked up to a monitor. We're getting and reading her first AKG. We see that her heart rate is 62 and she's in regular sinus rhythm. We get her finger stick. Her glucose is 80. Okay, so now we're up to the point where we want to administer Narcan. She's setting well. She's breathing seven a minute, but she's not having any improvement in mental status. So we're going to give the Narcan with a goal of safely waking her up to get the story. Narcan, our good buddy, the highly competitive opioid receptor antagonist. There's dozens of possible routes of of administration and doses, literally dozens. When I look them up, there's something like 54 combinations of doses and administration routes. What's the best choice for our patient? Well, the best choice depends on the history and presentation, of course, but in general, there's only two ways to give Narcan, code dosing and wake-up dosing. Code dosing for the apneic patient, patient with no pulse, 
0.4 milligrams IV IOIM. 0.4 milligrams of the code dosing. Everybody else, not coding or apneic, gets the wake-up dosing. That's fundamentally it. Are they coding or apneic, or do they need a wake-up? Simple as that. The code dosing, if your patient is in arrest or apneic, is that 0.4 milligrams for the acute overdose. Very acute. Apnea, seizure, cardiac arrest. <laughs> when, I was in, when I was in an EMT, <clears throat> when we found someone down, it's really simple. We just grabbed a handful of vials, uh, one mil vials of our 0.4 milligrams per ml Narcan, and we got to work. Nothing could be simpler. And if the patient isn't breathing, that's maybe appropriate. Any patient who is breathing merits something gentler. And by gentler, I mean nice Narcan wake-up dosing. Nice Narcan wake-up dosing for the opioid OD patient with respiratory drive. Nice Narcan wake-up dosing for the ED physician who does not want an angry, puking mess of a patient. So let's do it. What is nice Narcan wake-up dosing anyway? The dosing for patient-physician comfort. There's six routes. Six basic routes, a few potential doses, but essentially just six routes to keep in mind with three simple goals. Titrate to adequate ventilation, the ability to give a good history, and avoiding precipitating an acute withdrawal. So that's it. The nice Narcan wake-up has those three goals. Good ventilation, good history, avoid acute withdrawal. Acute withdrawal is actually harm, and this is something Steve wanted me to make sure I mentioned one of my captains used to put Narcan down the ET tube, and the results were catastrophic. Steve knows of a cancer patient who had Narcan slammed on for a little bit of respiratory depression, and when he came around, the patient described it as razor blades being jabbed all over his body. Opioid OD patients often have altered mental status, so we don't consider the potential pain involved in acute withdrawal. We should. This patient that we have in front of us, this 47-year-old woman, is a great example. She's very altered, but she's breathing. There's no reason to hurt her by slamming on the Narcan. She gets a nice Narcan wake-up. Nice Narcan wake-ups. Six of them. Here's the first one. Nice Narcan wake-up number one is the low IV dosing. We know about the high IV dosing. That's the 0.4 milligrams. That's what you need for the code for her. It would be a starting dose of 0.1 milligrams. That's the starting adult dose for the chronic user who has gone a little too far, like our patient. 0.1 milligrams IV. Increase or repeat the dose every two to three minutes to our three goals of getting a good history, breathing, and not inducing acute withdrawal. Every two to three minutes, 0.1 milligrams to a max dose of two to 10 milligrams. Nice Narcan wake-up number two, Narcan by Neb. And my personal favorites, two milligrams and three milliliters normal saline. If your patient is breathing greater than six times a minute, take two milligrams and three milliliters NS, throw it in an acorn, and put it in the line. There's a link in the show notes to dosing and outcomes, which have been really great. Please follow that link if you're interested. It's a great paper. So that's Narcan wake-up number two, Narcan by Neb. Narcan wake-up number three, gentle IVP. That's gentle IVP. If the patient is breathing at all, at any rate, instead of giving that 0.4 milligrams for the code dose or even the 0.1 milligrams for the gentle IV, you can give 0.04 milligrams by slow IVP. Dilute the one milligram vial into a 10 ml syringe, pull up nine mils of normal saline. 
and then push one mil out of that syringe every minute. This method and the rationale behind it are very well described in the ALIM podcast. There's a link in the show notes. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I love it. Narcan wake up number three, slow, gentle IVP. Nice Narcan wake up number four, Narcan IM. This is what I was raised on, so to speak, in the field. It's great if you don't have access. We would give, you know, 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams IM and titrate to effectiveness by redosing about every two minutes. 0.2 every two is super easy. That's what we used to do. 0.2 every two. It woke people up enough to give us a story while not precipitating AAS, acute anger syndrome. So 0.2 every two would generally avoid acute anger syndrome. It would have a milder onset of action than IV. And that's what we used pretty much every time, even if we had access because of the mild, mild onset and the slow wake up. The technique is losing favor, however, and I understand, because now we have a great new technique to play with, something we've been working towards for a long time. Nice Narcan wake up number five, Narcan intranasal. Narcan without the needle, just the antidote we've been waiting for. Unlike Narcan NAB or even gentle IBP, Narcan IN can be given first line to an apneic patient. The history of trying to get this to work is actually kind of interesting. There's a link to the paper in the show notes, but the, the short version is that we've been trying to get Narcan IN working for many, many years in the field, in the department. We didn't have a lot of luck. The bioavailability was just too low. However, we finally upped the effect of Narcan concentration in the atomizers, so Narcan IN is now being used basically everywhere we can get it to. First responders, police, everybody has Narcan IN if we can get it to them. The way that you give Narcan IN is one milligram per nostril in each nair via the atomizer for a grand total of two milligrams IN. If the patient has some respiratory effort, when you first see them, feel free to start with one milligram in one nostril, wait for two minutes, and give the other milligram in the other nostril. Just be sure to minimize runoff after administration, meaning lay the patient down, apply a little direct pressure, make sure that that dose actually gets in there and stays in there. The doses are in pre-measured kits, um, but if for some reason you're making it up yourself, the concentration for Narcan IN is one milligram per ml. There's a lot of good news um, in Narcan IN. Generally it works as long as the nares are patent and the patient doesn't have any abnormal physiology. Those are two big points. Got to have patent nares. If the patient was in a fight, there's a lot of blood, patient has some sort of you know upper respiratory infection, you might not be able to actually get the dose delivered. There's no risk of needle stick, which is a great thing, in, especially in these patients, which are a high-risk population. Narcan IN is a lot faster to administer even than IV Narcan. They've done a study on this. It's a little more than twice as fast to administer in the field and in the department. With the lower bioavailability, it was a pain at first, but the good news about it is that the reversal of the overdose is a gentler process than Narcan IV. So there is that good news. The slightly less good news is that non-response that was a problem for so long is still occasionally an issue. In one paper I read, up to 14% simply did not respond, and that can be for a lot of reasons. As we said, upper respiratory infection, abnormal physiology, long history of intranasal drug use, um, other drugs on board, <laughs> preventing, preventing that dose from having any effect, or of course it wasn't actually an opioid overdose to begin with. 
But the point is this, in the hospital, if you've tried IN first line with no response and the patient's respiratory effort is poor, you can't go by an EP, unfortunately. If they're breathing less than six, you can't go by gentle IV push if they're not breathing at all. And if they don't have IV access, you can't go by IV. So you might go IO. Let's talk about that really fast. Nice Narcan wake up number six, Narcan IO. Great for peds who got into the parent's oxy supply. The dosing for peds Narcan is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. That's IV, IM, IN, or IO for up to 20 kilograms. For adults, if this is the only access you have, and this is how you have to go, the dosing is the same as it is for IV Narcan, 0.1 to start for anyone who is not coding or apneic, or 0.4 milligrams for the code. So that's it. Those are our six nice Narcan wake-up methods. Please use them if you can. The last thing I'd like to talk about, the last method of Narcan administration, is the Narcan IV infusion. In the field, we could usually find the effective dose fast enough. You know, within you know, five or six minutes, we would usually have the patient either coming around or at least breathing better. A problem would arise if we had to transport for more than 30 minutes. The patient would sometimes become silent again in that transport. And that's because the half-life of Narcan is only 30 to 90 minutes, which is shorter than the half-life of most opioids, other than pure heroin. So as awesome as Narcan is, it's still just an antagonist. It doesn't remove any opioid from the patient's system. So if a patient has taken long-acting opioids, we may well need an infusion. When this happened in the field, we you know, set up an infusing fusion machine, and we'd go by whatever dose uh, medical control told us to go by in the department. This is often important, especially when your patient has OD'd on methadone. We'll talk about that in a while. But here's your Narcan infusion dosing and rate. The dose is two-thirds of the nice Narcan wake-up, aka the effective dose per hour. So if it ended up being three milligrams, that's what it took total between EMS and you to wake them up, then it's two milligrams per hour. To prevent a precipitous drop in the Narcan levels as your patient is coming on the infusion, to prevent them from drifting off again, it's recommended that you administer half the initial wake-up dose as a bolus, 15 minutes after you began the infusion. So if you have the ability, you have the time, you start your infusion, it took three milligrams to wake them up, to the point where they could give a story and they were breathing well. You're going to give two per hour, and then you're going to give 1.5 as a bolus, 15 minutes after initiating the infusion. And that infusion rate is good for any initial amount of rate of administration. Doesn't matter. IMIO, IN, IV, whatever that dose was, that wake-up dose. So that was a lot of information. Let's quickly review the routes and the dosing. Narcan IV or IO for adults. The dose is 0.1 milligrams every two minutes for the chronic user, 0.4 milligrams for the acute OD with apnea. Narcan by Neb. It's two milligrams and three milliliters NS. Must be breathing greater than six. Narcan IVP, 0.04 milligrams per milliliter. Push one mil every minute. Drop the four milligram vial into the 10 syringe Fill up the rest with normal saline. The patient must have some respiratory effort to make this work. Narcan IN, good for any situation as long as the nostrils are patent. Put one mil up each nair. Wait a minute between nairs if the patient has any respiratory effort. 
Narcan IM. We used to get give 0.2 uh, every two. You can start at 0.1 milligrams. Narcan IO, especially good for peats, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, up to 20 kgs. So that's it. That's all in the routes and doses. We're going to talk about the nice wake-up call, time six, and the code dose. What about onset? Well, the expected onset of Narcan depends, of course, upon the dose and the method of administration that you choose. Whatever you choose, the onset should be within a couple of minutes. Like we said, the duration is only 30 to 60. You should see some response within two minutes. If opioids alone are the cause of the altered mental status, you should see a fast response. If no improvement is seen in this patient with the initial intervention, and our patient is still GCS less than eight with no gag, we're in the middle of running an RSI, and we know how to do those. So what are we gonna do for this patient, this 47-year-old woman found down who is breathing and has a pulse? She's a chronic user, her respiratory rate's seven. We can consider some gentler approaches. So we start a Narcan neb, two milligrams and three mLs NS. We drop the flow rate in the lime so we don't blow the lid off the acorn, and our patient starts to come around we can start to move on to our usual diagnostic approach to altered mental status. We'll go over that in part two of this podcast. In part two of the podcast, we'll finish or complete the initial assessment of a patient with AMS, and this patient in particular. We'll finish up with the list lady and then go through her monitoring and disposition. Then we'll hit those guidelines and recommendations I promised you. We'll talk about a special case, methadone, <laughs> a very special case. All of that coming in part two of the podcast. Thank you so much. See you soon. Hey, everybody. This is Steve again. I just want to say a big thank you to Dr. Gifford for that great review of opioid overdose recognition and treatment. Before we go, I want to hammer one point home one more time, and that is be nice to your patients. Please, please, please do not go rapidly pushing big slugs of naloxone on patients not in cardiac arrest. You are not out to teach people a lesson or be judge and jury. Don't push naloxone malignantly as some form of punishment or to get the patient to fully wake up. Give just enough to get the patient breathing. If you talk to these patients, you'll find that the vast majority really don't want to be addicted to opioids, so we shouldn't be mean or vindictive by causing them to withdraw rapidly. That's all I'll say on that. I'll get off the soapbox, but I really want to emphasize that point one more time because I've seen it being done before and it's just not good and it's not right. I also want to clarify one point in the podcast. If you have a patient that has apneic and not responding to your initial dose of 0.4 milligrams of IV Narcan, and everything is pointing to an opioid overdose, you'll want to keep going aggressively with the Narcan while you are ventilating and oxygenating the patient. The same applies with those patients in cardiac arrest. While CPR and the resuscitation is ongoing, keep pushing as much Narcan as possible. Most toxicologists recommend that you give at least 10 milligrams of Narcan before giving up in a patient whom you strongly suspect an opioid overdose. With the newer opioid mixes out there, it is taking more and more Narcan to wake patients up. There are reports of carfentanil being found on the street, which is only used in large animals and can cause death in humans by simply absorbing a very small amount through your skin. As long as you can oxygenate and ventilate the patient, you can keep going with the Narcan up to a much higher dose than 0.4 milligrams. Remember, maximum of 10 milligrams. I want to thank our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. Check out the link at embase.org, where EM residents can get free access 
and attendees can get a great discount on their high-quality CME products. I've been reading these cover-to-cover each month since I was a resident, and well before they were the bandwidth sponsor of EM Basic, so this is a product that I really believe in. Finally, let me talk about the future of EM Basic, and don't worry because it's all good news. I'm sorry for the long hiatus. It's all on me, and I would be remiss to not acknowledge all those authors who have episodes pending for publication. However, all that time off has not gone to waste and has allowed me to get ahead of the game by getting episodes ready for publication so I can release them more consistently. Before now, I was publishing episodes as soon as I recorded them, which made me feel like I was constantly behind the eight ball. So here's the plan going forward. You'll hear part two of this episode next week on opioids in the ED. The week after that, we'll have an episode on hypothermia, because, let's face it, winter is here. After that, I have a plan moving forward to have at least two episodes a month. Some will be longer topic reviews, but others will be shorter literature reviews and even practical tips on improving your practice. At the beginning of February, just in time for the in-service exam, I'll be republishing a three-part video podcast on orthopedic emergencies that was originally published on the Emergency Board Review Podcast. From there, we'll have a bunch more topics that I'm excited to publish on a more regular basis. That's it for now. Thanks for hanging in there, and thanks for continuing to support and listen to EM Basic. As always, drop me an email at steve at embasic.org. Follow at embasic on Twitter and on Facebook as well. Till next time, this is Steve Carroll, signing off.